House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren, Mr. David Baseball Martino. <laughs> going to be the baseball guy from now on. Well, you're, yeah, that, I can't help it. I can't help it, just, you know. I mean, the karate little, the karate lessons there aren't really helping, but. No? Well, <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't even look at them. Come on. It scares, it scares me. You're scaring you're everybody afraid. away. Everyone's getting scared of you. I know. You know, getting kicked off of TikTok and all sorts of well, stuff. Well, yeah, they're brutal. You're violent. Yeah, <laughs> being reported. Me. Yeah, well, that, that's me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they say about snitches, Al? Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> I'm eight sixty, so it doesn't matter now. Yeah, it's, down, that's it's now. downhill now. Just remember, <laughs> if you're going to take me out, take me out. I don't want to just be wounded. You know, one leg and one arm. <laughs> Exactly. Just, I want to be gone. None of this messing around stuff. Anyway, quietly and quickly. Yeah. So now we we have a guy. He's never been on the show before, and probably after this he won't be again. But um, and now he's done some great writing, and he's got a new book out that I find is very important. Uh, I think it's got a really good theme to it. It's um, something interesting. And top this off, Arnold Schwarzenegger recommends the book. Wow. Yeah. But that's probably because he slept with him or paid him. Anyway. <laughs> uh, oh, boy, you can tell it's Friday for me. Anyway, so we're going to talk about the book called Animals. And the writer is Will Staples. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Oh, you're still here. Great. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't scare him away. You know, I, tend, I tend to do that yet. at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, that's that must be really a, just a boom of a great thing to have someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger come out and say he really recommends the book. Yeah, it was it was pretty exciting. You know, I hadn't hadn't written a book before, so I went into it wondering how much mud I'd get in my face trying to dip my toe in that water. And uh, and then once I finished it, uh, sent it out to Jane Goodall and to Arnold Schwarzenegger's people, and uh, both of them uh, responded very positively and ended up blurbing the book. And so uh, the Venn diagram of books that are recommended by the two of them is probably probably pretty limited, but um, yeah, it was it was exciting. Yeah, no, I think it's a good thing. I mean, uh, because in essence, you know, when you write, you kind of hope people. Um remember it or want or care about it you know what i mean um and think about it and actually have a uh, an opinion i think that's great you know personally but because uh, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about my books so. <laughs> <laughs> and and that keeps me going so um now y you've got quite the history like y you you must have been when you say dip your foot in the water um but you've got a lot of um, writing history because, you know, you've worked on Mission Impossible franchise. You've done Re Without Remorse and Jack Ryan, Shooter. Like, you've done – so you've got a lot of writing history. Yeah. I mean, I've been writing uh, professionally in Hollywood for, uh, I guess, 19 years now. So, um, you know, came to Hollywood initially to work on movies and then – started writing some video games on the side, like some like Call of Duty video games and things like that. And then, um, you know, more recently is sort of what types of things are being made in television versus film. You know, a lot of the stuff that I, I was really excited about in film is now being made in television. So I'm doing a lot more TV these days. Um, and, you know, for, for better or for worse, all the stuff that gets produced is this, the shoot em up action stuff. About half of the things I do are, you know, stories about issues and historical fiction and dramas and things like that. So when you went to this book, this is your first book book, and um, and now you're you're up against all these writers who are writers are terrible human beings too. <laughs> you know, I I see them, know them, work with them, and uh, so what what was it that made you or give you that push to actually write this book? Yeah, so I love doing deep dives into cutting edge issues, subcultures that sort of speak to what's going on in the world right now. And so I had been approached by Leonardo DiCaprio's company about doing a film about animal trafficking. Um, and 
of course you say yes. And then once I was hired, I realized that almost nothing is known about animal trafficking because um, there's no law enforcement dollars put towards investigating it. So, you know, you look at like the four biggest illicit markets in the world and you have like drugs, guns and human trafficking and then animal trafficking. But one of those isn't a law enforcement priority. So we don't know anything beyond the fact that, you know, we see photographs of elephants being killed in Africa and then we see ivory ending up in markets in Asia. But beyond that, it's like if all we knew about the cocaine trade was that coke is being grown in Bolivia and ends up in L.A., like you'd be missing the whole story. And so I went and did a, a ton of firsthand research uh, that I could you know, spend hours talking about that, but a ton of research and learned so much about the issue. And then as often happens with Hollywood movies, it sort of got put in suspended animation, waiting for actor schedules to line up, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, you know, nobody knows what's going on with this stuff. It's really important to me. The issue touched me very deeply. And I was like, I want to get this information out there. So I decided to uh, repackage it as a novel. And, um, you know, all of the producers on the project were supportive of that. And then just to make it clear that this wasn't some way to sort of do a side hustle or profit off suffering animals, I donated all the money from the book to wildlife charities, just, you know, and you know, hopefully it spreads some awareness about the issue because, you know, right now all the major traffickers are operating in with total impunity. Wow. Well, how dangerous was that research? Did you need a security team to to go out and, and uh, you know, look into this type of trafficking? That, <laughs> that would have been <laughs> that probably would have been a great idea now that you suggest it. Um, so uh, I went to I mean, at first I did a bunch of like, you know, phone interviews and things like that with people just to sort of learn as much as I could without doing field research. And then I went to seven different countries um, throughout uh, Africa and uh, Asia, and it got really hairy in a few different places. Um hmm. I would say there actually four of the countries all had pretty sketchy situations. Like we were deep in poaching villages in Mozambique, where it's just, you know, it's just the only economy is poaching. And if you show up, you want to make it, you don't want people to know what you're there to investigate. Right. Uh, and then in the Golden Triangle region of Asia, um, so you're talking um, areas of Myanmar, Laos, and Vietnam is where all the major traffickers operate. And they operate in these geopolitical black holes that nobody goes to. Um, and so I was with an environmentalist who had spent years developing a network of fixers in those areas to do undercover, like hidden camera footage and stuff like that. So he and I went together. We went to a warlord-controlled region of Myanmar. We had to surrender our passports to uh, the security forces to go into this city that, as far as the international community is concerned, doesn't exist. But you go there and wow. you have 100,000 people where there's like, you know, prostitution and drugs and gambling and, and every endangered animal you can think of on the menu. Similarly, there's a spot in Laos like that and Hanoi. I mean, I think what was shocking to me was how just some, as some idiot from Hollywood, I was able to end up deep behind the lines in all these places that nobody is choosing to go. Um, and that was, that was sort of the unsettling thing. I'm like, wait, so how, how can I get here, but nobody else is going here. Um, and wow. so that was really, so in the book, I make references to these various locations and cartels in the fictional story. And it's all the real cartels and the real locations. And anybody who reads the book could just go there tomorrow uh, if they have a certain risk appetite. Yeah, you better not give out your address. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for better for these places are so insulated that when you go there, it's like, like for example, in Mong La, in Special Region 4 in Myanmar, the idea of somebody who looks like me even showing up, like they hadn't seen somebody like me in years. So it's like, it doesn't cross their mind why I would even be there. It's sort of like if you showed up in like North Korea, you know, there's no sense of why outsiders would be even coming and interacting with you in certain ways. Um, and I had a cover story for every environment I was in. Um, that wasn't bulletproof, but it, it was enough to, you know, to stay out of trouble most of the time. At one point I did get detained um, for about a day and had to talk my way out of that one. And so uh, that was sketchy, but I got the mugshot out of it. And that was, you know, there's, there's some upside. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as long as there wasn't too deep and hard of a search. <laughs> There's a lot of verbal back and forth. I'll leave it at that. Oh, okay. Well, you know, it would be good to talk about the details. <laughs> you know, when I was I was writing a book years back for a publisher called In Chains, and it was about uh, 
the same sort of thing, but we didn't really um, cover animals. We were talking about human trafficking and, and how involved the U.S. really was in it and how people were really surprised by that. And a lot of the stories I covered were pretty terrifying for body parts and stuff. And uh, But when you went through this... Um, and you say that nobody's really, you know, that you could get in and nobody seemed, nobody else is doing it and it seemed to be no problem for the most part finding these places and seeing what's going on. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that nobody is doing it or does nobody care or what is it? Uh, my opinion is that there are geopolitically greater things at stake than the welfare of the natural world. Um, you know, so when you're looking at places like, uh, you know, Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, you know, China's obviously making huge inroads in those countries. The U.S. is, you know, has very significant trade interests and things like that. And so for us to use our leverage to do things like protect, you know, to stop bear bile farming and things like that, I just think it falls off the radar as a priority, um, which is too bad. And I think if people were aware of how bad it was and, and the scope of the devastation of the natural world happening over there, uh, I think we'd probably put more pressure on politicians to make that a priority. I mean, it's it was really staggering a lot of the a lot of the stuff I came across. And the reality is, you know, there are countries with that are pretty high on the corruption index, where local government officials are in on the trade. And um, you know, if people try and make a stink about it, the it pretty much gets shut down pretty quick. Uh, it's kind of crazy. What? Um... With, I guess let's not get too detailed, but what what were some of the things you learned that maybe surprised you? Maybe some of the things that you didn't expect to learn about trafficking and the use of, of animals um, in your research? Well, yeah, I mean the use of animals. So a, a couple things were were really startling. So I think I think one narrative that emerges, especially in sort of uh, you know left leaning political views in, in America is that it's this is about a cultural difference, right? That in certain cultures, they believe that certain uh, animal parts have uh, spiritual powers. And who are we to judge that? I mean, the reality is this stuff's been banned from traditional Chinese medicine for years. And this is all being run by cartels who are trying to profit off of superstition. And they're, you know, again, in Vietnam, for example, they have people who will lurk in the cancer wards and try and convince people to not get um, modern cures for cancer for their kids, but instead sell them rhino horn. So the cartel is selling rhino horn and false for, false hope when all they're giving these family is just, you know, keratin that they're charging 60 bucks a gram for. You know, it's the same price as cocaine or gold. And so, um, I mean, I, th I thought that was really depressing. And a lot of the people who are buying it also are buying these things as status symbols now. Um, you know, when you go to Horn Village in Vietnam, it's mostly rhino horn jewelry, elephant ivory jewelry and things like that for sale. Or if you go to the King's Roman Casino in Laos, you can get a tiger banquet or, or tiger wine or tiger penis wine, whatever. And it's sort of they sort of pay lip service to the fact that it'll make you more virile and whatever. But the reality is it's people going and buying exclusivity just instead of a Rolex or a bottle of fancy champagne. They're buying, you know. A tiger. Um, and so I thought, you know, the idea that this was really just about greed and organized crime and not about cultural differences, I found shocking. And then the other aspect of it that I found shocking was how out, once you get to these locations like King's Roman Casino in Laos, Mong Wan, Myanmar, Horn Village in Vietnam, this stuff is not hidden. It's like it's all out in the open. It's all out on the table, along with all manner of other illicit things, because these are cartels that are in the distribution business. And if you're distributing animal parts, you're probably using those same networks to distribute all sorts of other illicit stuff. And if you can get in there, it's none of it's hidden. So how do you know it was the same price as uh, cocaine? Oh, so just in the research when we buy the... <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Almost. From what I hear. From what I hear. <laughs> from, from what I hear. Well, Hang on Hollywood long enough. You hear a few stories. <laughs> Tagger penis wine. So isn't that just urine? No, it's like... It's a bottle of wine with a giant tiger penis floating in it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so you'd go to these restaurants, and <laughs> the centerpiece of these restaurants would be a giant uh, fish tank full of rice wine, and floating in the rice wine would be a tiger carcass that had been in there, you know, for a couple of years and was in some 
you know, state of decomposition, and then there'd be a spigot on the end, and you'd be given a glass, and you'd go, and you'd take a glass of wine off the end of this sort of, you know, brown slurry, and then everybody drinks it. I mean, the only thing it's got going for it is that the hooch is such high, you know, alcohol content <laughs> that there's probably nothing alive in there anymore. <laughs> oh, that's awful. That's crazy. Well, what did you learn about um, how these animals are smuggled out of their native countries? Yeah, so there are a number of ways that they're being sourced. Um, you know, so obviously, like, you know, when you talk about rhino parts, that's, you know, down in Africa, it's all about corruption, right? It's like there's, you know, it's such big business. You know, a rhino horn can be worth mm. hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so those, you know, there's a whole Belt and Road Initiative in China where they're, you know, if you go to Africa now, it's like there's there's Chinese people everywhere doing all manner of, you know, business development things. And so you have a whole network there. And those people are now creating a pipeline to start moving product north into um that Southeast Asia and East Asia. Um, and then a lot of it though, the new thing that nobody's really talking about is the scope of endangered animal farming that's going on. So there are secret tiger farms all throughout uh, Southeast Asia right now. Um, and there's, you know, obviously uh, there's movement to have uh, rhino horn or rhino farming. Um, but yeah, so it's sort of some stuff being farmed and some stuff being smuggled out, but a lot of it has to do with just all of the, um, you know, the Chinese expansion into these developing regions, creating these distribution networks. How many Americans are involved in the buying of this? Or are this, is this sort of thing going on within just their own countries over there? Uh, this is an over there issue. There are, there are other faces to wildlife trafficking and the exploitation of animals. Obviously, you know, the, the stories about Doc Antle and the Tiger King stuff, you know, there's a lot of that stuff breaking down. I mean, any exotic wildlife trade happening in the United States is inherently sketchy and probably illegal. Um, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff around horses and things. Um, you know, the reality is endangered animals are like fine art, like all private zoos and collectors want them, but it's really hard to establish provenance. Um, so things sort of just get moved around a lot of times with fake papers and things like that. But when you're talking about rhino, tiger, elephant, that's, you know, all the sort of Africa... Asia nexus. And I think what people don't really think about is like most of these animals with the exception of tigers are African animals. And most of the consumers are East Asian consumers. And it doesn't occur to people that, you know, folks in East Asia and folks in Africa are thousands of miles and a significant cultural difference apart. And so how are those two cultures connected and how's that distribution happening? And that's where you have the animal equivalent of, you know, the Zetas cartel and things like that operating in the Golden Triangle to connect those two cultures. So uh, now in the story, the story you have in here is primarily a fictional story, right? Or you, you've taken yeah. characters, ideas, locations from what you've come across, but it's all uh, fictional, correct? It is the same way a movie like Traffic is fictional or Contagion is, Contagion is fictional. You know, it, but I would say that in the case of this book, the location, there are a lot more real locations. I guess my thought was if I wrote a nonfiction book about the experiences I had and the things I saw, uh, a bunch of animal activists you know, and pro-animal people would buy the book and be like, yeah, we should care about animals. You know? Whereas I figured if I wrote a thriller uh, set in the world of global wildlife tracking, trafficking where you invest in the characters and get exposed to what's really going on that, you know, it might force people to, you know, learn a little bit about what's going on. They may not know. And the book is not preachy about what you should take away from it. It's saying, here's what's really going on. This is something that we should all care about for different reasons and how you act on that information is up to you. Um, so, you know, I've had people who are vegans who really love the book and I have had people who are hunters who really love the book. Um, which has been interesting to see. But, yeah, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a story about human characters traversing this very corrosive, dark underworld of animal trafficking. And it really, I mean, that's the other thing, is it really everybody I've interacted with in that world is really uh, impacted by it in a, in a deeply negative way. Um, and so, I mean, it made for fascinating characters to write about. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd imagine it would. So I think now what Randall Knight is one of your main characters. Um, so how do you how do you create a character then? Like where do you get that from in your mind? 
Yeah, so that um, there's a little piece of myself in all of the characters, I would say. You know, so for the Randall Knight character, um, you know, something that I have been fascinated by is how none of us think that we're the problem, um, yet we all make choices that impact the animal world negatively. Um, and so, you know, for Randall Knight, I wanted this the idea of this sort of unsentimental wheeler dealer who's involved in the animal industry, but that doesn't think that he's a part of the problem, um, who over the course of the story, you know, increasingly there's this nagging realization that he is a part of this problem and that, you know, he is part of the exploitation of the natural world. Um, so, you know, there's an element of like Rick from Casablanca in him, you know, he's a guy who, you know, at the beginning of the story, doesn't stick his neck out for nobody. Um, and, you know, I also felt like, you know, originally this, the, the genesis of this project was writing a story for three movie stars. And uh, I knew that they were all stars that gravitated towards really complex roles. And so the Randall Knight character was originally developed for Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, and looking for a, a muscular role for him that would be complex and interesting. Uh, so that was sort of where it came from. Well, if he's not available, you could always use me. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you experience Randall? Do, do you have an inner monologue in your head? Can you hear him? Um, is that is that kind of how you um, uh, create your dialogue, or is this more uh, of a visual thing for you since you've worked in uh, film and TV? Uh, both. I mean, I, music is very important for me, um, and so I, you know, I'll develop a soundtrack for each project, for each character, um, to help me immediately put myself in that headspace. You know, for Randall. Uh, there are choices that I make in my own life that I can't fully justify, uh, you know, vis-a-vis animals and animal exploitation. Um, and you sort of try and put those thoughts away. And I think for Randall, I really wanted to start sort of, you know, picking at that and, and seeing where it went. Um, so he was a really fun character to write. Uh, he, he's, he's a pretty, uh, pretty, He's a real, um, he'd be a bit of a jerk, Randall, uh, for those of you reading the book. Um, and he's somebody who, you know, he sort of is a, a, who believes strongly in capitalism as the solution to all problems. Um, and believes that when you fight the iron hand of economics, it's pointless. Um, and I think we all sort of can look at things like global warming, destruction of the natural world and things like that. And we say, yeah, it's bad, but what am I going to do? Am I really going to? buy a different car or, you know, make these other choices. And at the end of the day, most of us go on living our life, trundling towards the end of the natural world and trundling towards, uh, you know, this crazy climate change that we're experiencing without really making any meaningful choices to stop it. Um, I just find that fascinating about human psychology. And so Randall was really me trying to externalize that in a character who is aware of these things and also aware of how pointless it is to fight them. Hmm. I think I think we as humans we fight change because change brings age and then we die. Um, but and we uh, also know that like you know, if say I you know uh, make a certain choice not to drive somewhere to ride my bike instead, is that really going to change the course of global warming? And so we all sort of default to that. What difference am I going to make? Um, and so really, if there's a theme to the book, it's that we all have to draw a line, or the line gets drawn for us. And if our we can draw that line wherever we want, but to pretend that we're not drawing a line for ourselves is foolish. Um, and then my, my goal with it is, you know, if you are like, I'm a hunter, but I like to hunt sustainably, then, you know, that's your choice. And, you know, if you can live with it, then good for you. And if you think, you know, I can't be complicit in the destruction of animals and I want to be a vegan and wear plant-based shoes and things like that, then that's where your line is. And so uh, that was sort of where Randall's character how he sort of lived in the center of the story. Yeah, and and of course we've all seen those pictures of different, uh, sometimes celebrities and sometimes, you know, like uh, Trump Jr. or somebody out there that have gone and shot some wild game or some um, animal in in Africa somewhere just for the sport of it and stuff. Um, do you do you kind of cover that in this sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, there's a whole section um, because I did want to traverse that aspect of the issue because it is important. There are um, certain animals that it's really hard to make them commercially viable. You know, like if you're talking about forest elephants in certain parts of the world, 
they're terrible for tourism. So if you open a hunting concession, you can protect the forest elephants. But on the other hand, you're protecting them so you can kill them and manage a population. And so I think there is a question of what I think. And it's really just like a, a moral question of whether it's better to preserve animals so that we can kill them for our own pleasure or whether it's better to let them die off. Obviously, in a perfect world, we would preserve them for the sake of preserving them and because it's important to protect ecosystems and habitats. But uh, that's not the world we live in. And I think that was one of the things I wanted to explore with the book is like, let's let's look at these ugly truths that we have these moral judgments to make and make your own judgment. The book's not telling you which way to go with it. I mean, there were some pretty there. And then there's some unambiguously disgusting things. Like I went to a hunting concession and I, I mentioned this in the book as a fictional uh, event, but it really happened. Went to a hunting concession in Mozambique where uh, it was basically shut down for the year. And it turned out a Russian billionaire had showed up a month before and asked the hunting concession, what is your quota for all the different animals you're allowed to kill on this hunting concession? And, uh, he, they showed it to him and he said, I want to, okay, I want to stay here until I've killed everything. And so the guy stayed at the hunting concession until he wiped out every animal the concession was allowed to kill that year and then went home. Um, and, you know, one of the animals was apparently a lion that they uh, were not able to find because there just wasn't a lion on the property, yet that concession was allowed to kill a lion that year. And so uh, according to one of the people we spoke to there, uh, eventually a, a uh, donkey was tied to a tree and a hole was cut in a fence and a lion crawled through that fence from a neighboring park uh, to go eat the donkey. And then it was killed by the billionaire. Um, and so things like that, obviously, I found disturbing. Yet at the same time on that land where the hunting concession was prior to the concession coming in, there was nothing but red dust because everything had been killed there years before. So I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, we basically create these environments for wealthy people to execute these animals um but there were no animals there before hmm. well you don't have to tell us which russian it is but is it a guy that run rides a horse with no shirt on? <laughs> how do you get more details on that it was, it was a very very quiet conversation um you know and also it's a bit of like a, a, you know there's a bit of a wilderness of mirrors when you get into that world where it's like you never know who's telling you the truth about what um like you know in south africa i you know when i was investigating poaching and Kruger, I definitely talked to several different people, each of whom told me the other person was a complete liar. So on the one hand, that's frustrating as a researcher. On the other hand, it's really fascinating that you're in this area where you have no idea who's telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Washington. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when, how do you decide with all of these different things going on when you're out doing the research, how do you decide which, stories or which sort of events you're going to put into this story? It was a real challenge. Um, it was important to me that if you look at, you know, any illicit market is having sort of three layers to it. You've got the production, which in the case of animal trafficking is the killing of the animal. You've got the distribution and then you've got the consumption. I, I it was important to me that we traversed all three layers. And so um, I tried to, create a series of, you know, so I settled because of that on having multiple perspectives and creating a braided narrative where we're starting out in different points uh, of different places on earth with different characters. And we can't see how these things could possibly be connected. And then very quickly they start braiding together and colliding in very explosive ways. Um, And so each narrative was engineered to traverse a certain geography and aspect of the supply chain. And also I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, audiences remember moments, not story. And so I start from a place of what are, what are the knockout round moments that we could create with these characters? What's the most extreme way that we could smash this guy into this guy and how they could lay each other bare. And then I sort of back into what would earn that moment. How do we get there? Uh, but this one more than anything I've ever written involved just weeks of note carding and trying to solve the puzzle of like how, how does this guy get from here to here? And if he's there at this point, how's that guy get there? And and eventually it all just sort of clicked into place. Uh, and that was a really exciting moment. And then once I had that, I was like, I've got to get the story out one way or another. And that was why it, when the idea of, present, of writing this as a book presented itself, I just had to do it. 
How long did it take you to, to do all of this, like to, to go to all these places and see people and then put it down on paper and kind of go through it? It must have been a while. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean I'm mean, i just a firm believer in, like, what's the point of writing any of this stuff if, you don't, if you're not telling the truth and you only have the truth if you have the facts? And so, uh, the, you know, I did the interviews for a few weeks, and then I did 30 days in the field. It was a real whirlwind bouncing around the seven countries over that 30 days. Um, and then wrote the movie script and there was a long sort of period of waiting to see if when that would happen. And then once I committed to writing the book, uh, yeah, I tend to write from a place of fear, but also the idea that all writing is rewriting. So I wrote the first draft very quickly of the book, of the book really quickly, and then spent a ton of time rewriting it, getting notes from friends and things. And then, um, but it all came together pretty quickly. I mean, I, I knew that I had a gap in my movie schedule to write it. And um, so I probably wrote the, the whole book in about 10 weeks and then worked with an editor once I sold it to a publisher. How do you feel now that you've done it? I mean, do you, do you, did, did this sort of process make you feel like uh, more hopeful or did it make you feel more depressed? Uh, made me feel more hopeful about my writing and more depressed about the world. <laughs> I mean, it was a great, I mean, it was a, it was a great process. I loved writing the book, you know, so often you do things in Hollywood and there's such a huge disconnect between what you put on the page and what ends up on the screen Mm. or, you know, about half the stuff I do, I'm being brought in to fix things that are broken and you can only, you know, come in on a movie for three weeks and you try and fix as much as you can, but the end product is still not going to be, it's not going to be an A plus, it might be B plus. And so, um, it was great to work on something where the words on the page are the words that people are experiencing and people seem to have responded very positively to that. Um, I think the sense of futility I feel about this issue has not been diminished by the experience of releasing this book. Um, it's just an issue that nothing has really changed since I initially did the research. You could still go to the same places and see the same things. Um, yes, I, it's, it's, a, it's a really rough issue, this one. Was it a big transition going from uh, screenwriting to uh, to prose novels? It was a was huge it? transition. Yeah, I mean, mm. you know, it's sort of because so much of screenwriting is 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 you know designing the blueprint for the building, um, mm. and you know this one you're doing all the interior decorating too. Um, mm. And so, I think you know in screenwriting, you know, you might reuse the same verb twice on the same page, and you're like, eh, is that the best <laughs> word? But you know, the point is the character's running. And, uh, you know, with this, I, I really felt pretty exposed in terms of, you know, with each sentence I was writing, like, people are going to read this and are they going to be moved by this? Will they think this is artful or not artful? Um, mm-hmm. And so there's definitely a lot more agony that went into each sentence. I think the other thing that was funny is uh, movies, when you write movies, it's such an efficient uh, art form because it's, you know, one page per minute. So things just have to happen. It's just, you know, an avalanche going down the mountain when you're writing a movie. And so the first draft of the book came in at like <laughs> 35,000 words or something. And it was, it was just, it was just breakneck pace. And I was like, whoa, all right, this thing's got to breathe a little bit. So then went back and was like, all right, what's, what's missing? You know, where do we need to dig deeper with these characters? Um, and then it was really fun going back in and saying, okay, like, what's something else that could happen with this character? Like where, where else can we push them? How far can we take them? Because we have the room to do it. And, you know, readers have a little bit more of an attention span than than moviegoers hmm. not much <laughs> <laughs> it's still a pretty quick book. backlash you worried about any sort of a slam back for people that are thinking you're being too pc or something like that uh it's definitely not a pc book i you know and it's 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 non-political and it doesn't have an agenda beyond exposing what's really go- going on out there you know, for, so, you know, for example, when I was in Laos, I was outside this place, uh, Boten, which is a top animal trafficking destination. Anybody could go there tomorrow and, and, you know, experience animal trafficking firsthand. Uh, but we, we heard about a bear bile farm down the road and we went there and found a bunch of bears in crushed cages. So they're like splayed out with catheters and being drained for bear bile. They're pinned down. They're going to spend their whole lives pinned down in these rusty cages being drained of their bile. And it was just this horrifying, shocking thing. And I was like, nobody knows this is happening here. I've got to write about this. And so, you know, putting that down on the page, it's shocking and horrifying, but 
I'm not casting judgment on it as a cultural thing or this or that. I'm saying this is happening in this place and maybe you don't care about it. Maybe you do. Um, but it really affected me. Um, and so, yeah, I don't worry too much about a backlash because the book is not sanctimonious or, or selling anything. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I would have wrote it more nasty toward people <laughs> doing it, but that's, you know, their bile. So what am I missing? Why would they want that? Well, in Chinese culture, there's a whole theory of jinbu, which is you are what you eat. And so, you know, that's like, Hey, I'm an alcoholic. My liver's not working so good. So I'm going to get bear bile because if I have bear bile, that'll help my liver. And, but you know, the other thing that's, that's ridiculous is I would start going to these, uh, these doctors that I knew were engaged in selling illicit animal parts. And if you go to a doctor in Hanoi selling illicit animal parts, he's selling, say, tiger cake, right? And you tell him that you have sexual dysfunction, tiger cake. You tell him you have a scar on your ankle from ankle surgery, tiger cake. They, they're in the business of selling these things. And so it's all baloney, you know, what they're actually carrying and not carrying. They're just trying to move a very valuable product. Um, and the book is, the book is, is brutal in that, you know, these people are involved in exploiting underage girls and moving amphetamines and all sorts of stuff. And like, these are bad, bad people trafficking these things. Um, you know, the same way if you're writing about, you know, a Mexican cartel, it's like they're engaged in all sorts of murder, et cetera. So, uh, it's pretty unvarnished in that, in that respect. It's disturbing. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's kind of like natural paths, but you know, <laughs> they're disturbing, but in a different way. But this is the same sort of thing, you know what I mean? But using animals, it's just, it's, it's awful. Um, yeah. And you know, you've got a whole, you've got a middle class in China that's now larger than the entire population of the United States. And they're looking to spend that money. And some percentage of them are looking to spend it on exclusivity and things that are illegal, uh, you know, to, uh, showcase their ability to get exclusive things. And so, you know, they're going and buying rhino and tiger and all these things. And it's, you know, it's showy having your giant rhino horn bead necklace. Um, but at the end of the day, these animals, they're almost all gone. And so you look at an economic engine like that relative to the populations of these animals that remain and the amount of money being spent to protect them. And it's, it's really hard to see the math working out for the animals. And so that, that was sort of, you know, it was, it was definitely like, a, I've, you know, worked on a lot of movies and TV things. That was the one where I came back and I was like, oh, I think I'm about 15 pounds lighter than when I left. And I have a really gloomy world outlook and then eventually sort of bounced back and got back to writing shoot 'em up stuff. But, uh, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was, shoot, it was shoot those humans. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Make them pay for it. I mean, you know, I mean, animals are equal to humans, you know. In my I, mind, I, I did want to. So, I mean, the, you know, at the beginning of the book, it says this is a story about animals, some of which happen to be human. I did want to make it clear that we should blur that line a little bit. And that when you look at like how, you know, like when, when elephants are being wiped out in Central Africa, they shoot the baby first. They let the baby fall and it's dying and bleeding out. And then none of the adults will leave because they have such strong family structures and elephant populations. So then once they've killed the baby, they know that they can kill every other animal in the herd because they won't leave a child behind. And so you're like, okay, how can we look at those things as being others from us when it's their own emotional connection to their family that's causing them to be wiped out? Yeah, that's, that's truly disturbing, I think, because I really put us on equal. It's just we might have the position of running a lot of what's going on in this world right now. And, but that means taking responsibility for everything else in the world. You know, yeah. That's my point of view. And I think it's awful um, that they do this. Um, but, you know, I, I won't get into it because I can get in trouble. Well, no, it's uh, tough because then, you know, then you see on, you know, on what follows from that is this fantasy of like, oh, we should send over some good guys with guns to go wipe out the bad guys with guns. But a lot of the, you know, quote, bad guys with guns are like, like in Mozambique, for example, no, all, all the, the way it's structured is the syndicate leaders in Mozambique are in, basically rent out guns to teenage kids. And then those kids have to go kill a rhino, uh, to pay off the rental. And so a lot of those, like I was involved in the, uh, like tagging along with Rangers when we apprehended three kids. These kids had never been to Kruger before. They didn't know how to shoot a gun, but they had rented a gun for 250 bucks and they knew if they didn't bag a rhino, they were, uh, they were never going to be able to pay it off to the local crime syndicate. 
And so, you know, we ended up arresting them. They're going to jail for 12 years. And so it was like three kids who just like were dressed in like bright track suits, which are just stupid for hunting, who would never hunt anything in their lives, who ha- live in an area with no economic opportunity. We're like, okay, our birthright is over there in Kruger. Let's go try and kill one of those because it'll pay my whole family for a year. And so do we want to go and shoot those teenage kids? Like that's not really my fantasy. So mm. it's really a tragedy across the board. And the only people that you can sort of unambiguously have pretty negative feelings towards are the syndicate le- leaders who are exploiting buyers, exploiting, um, cost, you know, exploiting the customers, exploiting the animals, exploiting everyone they can for profit. Yeah. 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 It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's terrible. But, um, uh, so at the end of the day, when someone picks up this book and they bring it home and they read it, um, what is it you want them to take away from it? Well, first, I want them to be engaged and think this is a super high octane crime thriller and this is an exciting read. It's got all the stuff I'm looking for in a great crime story. It's got complex characters, a dark underworld. Um, you know, it's it's got all the ingredients of, of an exciting story. And then realize, oh, my God, everything that these characters are experiencing is rooted in reality. And ideally come out of that with some impulse to act or at least be aware that their choices are impacting the world in in various ways. And so, um, you know, for me personally, there are certain organizations that I donate to now that I didn't donate to before because I feel like they're doing work that's actually making a meaningful impact. Um, you know, for other people, they might have a different takeaway and I didn't really want to be prescriptive with that, but I really hope people just read it and think this is an awesome book that was worth my time. And I learned a lot along the way. Um, and I've got a sequel that I've mapped out, but haven't written yet that, uh, will explore a different facet of, of the issue. Yeah. I was going to ask if you're kind of uh, following up with something else or kind of getting into another area. Um, so you are kind of thinking about it. Yeah, I've got a story, um, you know, so so this book was focused on uh, the intersection of organized crime and animal exploitation. And um, the next book is about uh, warlords and militias and how they intersect the animal issue um, in a way that has very dire consequences for, for the human population. Um, you know, the one thing I really didn't want to do uh, was do anything that's not rooted in truth. And so, you know, this next book, I've done another deep dive into that world and uh, sort of the the rough pitch would be the next book is basically Unforgiven in the Congo. Yeah. You know, but these sort of things um, when you're doing them and I know I've done some and um, it's kind of really hard to get through when you're doing the work the research and you're writing and you're going through all these experiences. But at the end of it, it usually feels better when it's done. Um, but it, it takes a lot out of you. Like this must've taken a lot out of you, this book. It, it crushed me. Yeah. I mean, it took a lot out of me. It, you know, I, t- I tend to find that in my writing process, there's the euphoria when you first start the project and it's all potential. And then there's the horror of actually having to write it. And then there's that moment <laughs> when the clouds part, when it all fits, and then you're in the rewriting process and you're like, ah, oh, this isn't that bad. And then you sort of click back into that really excited place. I mean, it's sort of like rock climbing or something where you get to the top and it's like, hey, now I feel great about this, but the whole way up, it felt horrible. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, was, it was exciting to finish though. And I was excited to put it out in the world. And then there was that moment where, you know, it, it came out and I was like, oh man, I hope people like it. Uh, and, and it seemed to find an audience, which is great. Yeah. Now, the, what about the, you know, there's a little touch off on disease or, or pandemic and stuff, because, you know, uh, the eating of a bat is not always good. Um, when, you, when you talk about that, do you ever think of getting into that area itself? So, so funny enough, the, the Randall, so Randall Knight is an insurance investigator in the story who insures uh, private zoo collections in the United States. And the inciting incident in his storyline is that he's called to a private zoo in Florida where there's been an outbreak of feline leukemia in the tiger population. And it's never uh, jumped to tigers before. And this could only happen in a certain environment that he knows would be associated with illegal practices. Um, And I worked with an epidemiologist uh, named Matt Freeman at the University of Maryland uh, to develop the virus. And this was back in like 2018 or something. And so the whole uh, sort of 
uh, global stakes of the story are that if Knight doesn't unravel this case, this this tiger disease could jump to humans and cause a global pandemic. And then the book came out in, you know, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and it looked like I was chasing the news cycle. And Matt Freeman is now <laughs> the epidemiologist who's like at front and center studying uh, coronaviruses um, in real life. So uh, it was definitely a book that was ahead of its time on that issue, but not ahead of its time when it was released. Yeah, just crazy. Uh, I mean, crazy. It is, when you go to like, so one little anecdote, uh, when we were at the King's Roman Casino in Laos, uh, we were served tiger meat later confirmed with DNA testing. And, uh, you know, I, I asked the chef where the tiger came from. He said, Oh, this is a wild caught tiger. And we looked at its teeth in the freezer and, uh, the teeth were, were totally shiny and clean, which means it had been eating chicken, like a wild tiger has broken teeth. And yeah. so, so then we go and we're being served this tiger meat, which I'm not eating. I'm just sort of shuffling off, you know, to later DNA test it. And I asked the waitress, say, where did this tiger come from? Because we knew that there was a tiger zoo across the street from the casino with like 70 tigers in it. And she goes, oh, these Laotian military helicopters showed up, dropped off these tigers uh, a couple weeks ago. And the tigers just started getting smaller and smaller until they fell over and died. And that's the tiger that you're eating. I don't know what disease that is, but some sort of wasting disease killed this tiger, and now I'm being served it. Fantastic. Uh, well, yeah, the the other white meat. Oh, like, oh. yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you go like you go on a bear bile farm. Is like just all of these things are just so horribly disgusting and unsanitary that it's actually shocking to me that there haven't been more pandemics. But you know, most of the pandemics that we see coming out, like these avian flus and things like that are coming from that area of the golden triangle where the animal trafficking is such a rampant. You have all sorts of things, you know, living and pooping together and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, Alex Jones told me it was Bill Gates. Well, there's that. <laughs> that's the, that's the third book. <laughs> Bill Gates is doing it all. That's, that's, you know, this, it, it, it's, it's crazy when you do stuff like this and you, it, you must, it must make you, crazy when you see things or hear things that are totally counter to what you see when you go out and do these sort of books yeah the most maddening part to me is because i'm involved philanthropically with some of these organizations now is you go to these like fundraisers or there's these online campaigns and it's just like a bunch of influencers and collectivists all showing up to be associated with the issue, but nobody's really doing anything beyond being fashionably behind the animals. Um, you know, even uh, some of the Hollywood people that are ostensibly advocating for animals are buying into false narratives about what's really going on. Um, and so I've just been shocked at how uneducated a lot of the people are. And I don't know, it just, it just feels like it's a very fashionable issue, but not one that people actually want to tackle. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad, you know. So how do people find you? So how does Bill Gates get you that vaccine? Do you have a website? <laughs> do you have social media? Where do you like your fans and listeners and, and CIA to find you? Um, well, you know, I I tend to be a, a firm believer that I, I let the um, – the writing do the talking for me and not my social media presence. So, you know, I've, I've got an Instagram and a Twitter uh, that, uh, you know, occasionally I'll put out some research stuff. Like I was just up in the Arctic Circle with Inupiaq Hunters researching a new project. So, you know, I've been posting some stuff from the Arctic on on those things. Um, but uh, for the most part, I, you know, I just love for people to, to read the book um, and experience the work. Uh, yeah, for me, it's all, it's all, about, the, it's all about the work. I'm the same way. Don't call me. I'll call you, you know, <laughs> um, but you, do you have a website then or no? Uh, no website. Um, you know, I, when people have contacted me, it's usually through Instagram. I have a public Instagram, um, which is, you know, I just, I post research photos and things like that. Um, not a lot of shirtless selfies at Havasu or anything like that. Oh, wow. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason I'm on there. Um, well, I mean, we're going to have that up, your book up and the website and all that stuff. So people well, yeah. can, the different I locations. I'm notoriously a pretty wild research junkie, so uh, if you go on the Instagram, you'll see some pretty fun stuff. I do a lot of stuff at the Department of Defense, so it's like I've been on a nuclear submarine on the Arctic, up at the North Pole, like done, you know, backseated bombing runs in an F-16, stuff like that. So hmm. uh, I like to get out there and, and mix it up and have some fun. And so the animal tracking research was another one of those where I went 
way down the rabbit hole, but on the Instagram, there is, there are a lot of research photos corroborating the things that we've been dis- discussing in this conversation um, right. and things in the book. Yeah. I think my, my, my mugshot might be up there and I can put it up there. Any nudes or anything? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think oh. so. Not yet. But we're gonna... Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're going to stay on it. <laughs> <laughs> anything well, that's all... traffic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's how, that's what I do. Um, they're not me, of course. They're others. <laughs> Um, so of course we'll have all that out. People can find the book and, and all that stuff like this. So how do, so how do you, how does, how does one, you know, I've been trying to do this for years. So how does one get to write in all these big projects and, 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 you know, Leo, Leo DiCaprio and Schwarzenegger and all this stuff. So what do you like? What? So I, I should be doing this. So how, 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 how does someone like me get to do this? You see, I slept my way and all I did was get put on radio. So. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work. So what what's what's going on with this? Like how do you how did you get so lucky? Uh well, you know, it's like they say, like, you know, any any writing career is, you know, uh hard work, talent, and luck, and you only can control one. So I'm I'm just a workhorse. I, I, I write all day every day. I if I'm doing a project, I I research like crazy. I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who writes that goes deeper than me on the research. Um yeah. and I think that is one reason that I get a lot of work in Hollywood is, you know, actors and directors, especially traffic and specificity. And they want to know that if they're playing a Navy SEAL, that the writer knows a lot of Navy SEALs and has been talking to those Navy SEALs constantly when writing every single line of dialogue and things like that. You know, it's like I'm doing this Eddie Gallagher story, um, adapting the New York Times reporting about um, Eddie's alleged murder of the detainee in Iraq. And, you know, I'm talking to, all sorts of people are involved in that case um, and not involved with the case who have, you know, opinions about it and maybe who have firsthand knowledge about things, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, for me, I, I love that stuff. And so I tend to get brought in when people want to know that what they're going to get is going to be real. And I think with this animal trafficking one, it was the same thing. They were like, who's the writer that's going to go where nobody else is going to go and have absolutely uh no good judgment along the way about when to call it quits. Um, so, you know, hence getting arrested in Myanmar. Yeah. Well, what happens when Will Staples goes missing? Nothing. <laughs> it just, they just it's find very, another writer and that's it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very quiet. Um, yeah. Wow. No, nobody's coming for you. Nobody really cares. Uh, you know, the agent's got plenty of other clients. So, um, <laughs> Now, ain't that the truth? Boy. It, it was funny. I mean, before I went, I had a couple uh, friends who were uh, ex-spec ops from various, like, black ops units, and I had long conversations with them about uh, different survival strategies for different situations, um, you know, developing cover stories, how to how to maintain a cover, things like that. Uh, they, they served me well along the way. Yeah, yeah. See, and I was, you know, neighbors with Arnold and Maria for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. Whereabouts? Yeah. Oh, they they have a a house up in uh, the Kelowna part of the Okanagan, up in British Columbia, Canada, in the desert part, you know, over the lake, the oh, winery yeah. tours, and they have a house with a helicopter pad and everything. But of course, they you know now that they're not together, they sold the house. But you know, uh, that, the only thing I ever did was see someone on a helicopter. I didn't. <laughs> they never spent any time talking to me, so don't you know. I can see his office from my office, and I was over there like a year or two ago and got some great pictures of the Conan sword, which is probably the highlight of my wow. career. Yeah, well, that's probably more important anyway. <laughs> wow, well, I appreciate this. This is great. It's a great book, and we recommend uh, people to get on board, pick up a book. It's, uh, it's an important read, uh, something that you've spent a lot of time on, and, you know, it's important. So uh, the book is called Animals. And it's by our guest, Will Staples. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, and thanks for shining a light on the book. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Will. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.